Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec, and today I'm talking to Anthony Ryan Hatch. He's an associate professor of science and society at Wesleyan University, and his latest book is Silent Cells, The Secret Drugging of Captive America. We'll talk about how drugs are used to maintain order in the U.S. prison system and how similar strategies are used elsewhere in society, nursing homes, the military, and immigrant detention facilities. How's it going, Anthony? Going well, sir. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Your latest book is titled Silent Cells. It's a bit of a double entendre to describe mental prisons, the cell being the traditional cell and also the cells located inside our brain. Can you describe that a little bit? I mean, you've nailed it. I've been working on this project for about 10 years, and I latched on to this double meaning really early on in the project's formation. I was a a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, and uh, I tell the story in the book, but I, we, were, we were there in the summer training program, and um, there was a, a former prison psychiatrist who came to speak with us one afternoon. And after you know, she spoke, I you know, had, been, had been thinking about um, you know, what, you know, how drugs entered the prison, just in, in, as connected to my, my previous work. And um, so I asked her you know, what she thought about the use of psychotropic drugs in prisons. And she kind of, you know, rocked back on her heel and smirked and uh, said, well, let me put it to you this way. Each year, the warden sends me and my staff a nice bottle of something because he knows we keep the prison quiet. And so from the very, very beginning for me, this was about, about silencing of some kind, right? Um, and I was initially concerned with that kind of silencing of prisoners, the silencing of dissent, the silencing, uh, you know, of the the kind of absurdity of mass incarceration and its kind of horrific violence um, in our society. And you know, it wasn't until later that there was yet, yet another uh, meaning of silence that, that came to define the book, and that was in terms of knowledge, in terms of you know, what, we, what we did and didn't know about what was going on in the prison, um, and kind of taking that question both of what, what the prisons were doing to prisoners seriously, but also seeing how that was linked to, uh, to knowledge. So in your book, you say psychotropics, and if we could get a little bit, a quick definition of that, uh, but psychotropics are technologies that have agency. So besides the definition, what, what do you mean by that? And how are they exactly used in prisons? So psychotropics is this kind of uh, umbrella term that captures and describes all of the various pharmaceuticals that um, act on, or hypothetically, theoretically, uh, you know, promissorily act on the brain, mm-hmm. um, act within the brain, and act on uh, to shape our mood, to shape our mental health, to shape um, how our, uh, our all of our all of our feelings. Right? They they impact the central nervous system, um, and so this includes antipsychotic drugs, antidepressants, uh, mood stabilizers. Um, sedatives, tra- there's a whole, ca- you know, several subcategories of drugs that are encompassed under psychotropics. And that, you know, is, 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 is enshrined in this idea that some scholars have been playing with that, you know, technologies aren't just things that people use, right? It's not just a tool, right? Where, where, where to see what the effect of the tool is, you would have to look at the, the intent of the, of the user, right? You'd focus on what they intended to do with the tool, and, you know, this, this understanding from science studies, you know, kind of pushes a little bit beyond that to say, well, 
you know, the user may have had certain intentions, but we don't really need to consider those uh, solely. You know, what effects did the actual technology have in the world? Right. And, and trying to track those down um, as best you can. And those, I think, are separable things. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I was less concerned with, you know, whether or not people were you know, in, in prisons or other institutions were trying to sedate people. <laughs> um, you know, that's a very difficult thing to know. Um, right. But rather, you know, what were the institutional effects of the drugs? Um, with you know, as they were deployed in these institutions, and so you know, to uh, there's this uh, interesting kind of term that came out of the government. Actually, it's called techno corrections. And uh, in in the year 2000, there's this kind of prison policy thinker guy who you know kind of coined this term and published this kind of short little kind of you know little think piece where he postulated that techno corrections, you know, the application of technology in corrections could you know, transform how the state did incarceration. The, the, the claim was it could make it cheaper, it would be safer. Um, and, you know, techno-corrections included principally psychotropics. It also included um, all sorts of neurobiological risk assessments that were, you know, they were kind of envisioning and all sorts of surveillance and tracking systems. Uh, all, of course, you know, this was in 2000, so this is, you know, kind of right. pre-internet. So, um uh, well, we had the internet in 2000, but it, what, we weren't anything like what we have now. There's an interesting dichotomy in, in one way to think about these things. So, for instance, prisoners are given health care through the prison system. So if they're given ibuprofen or, or something like that for a medical issue, we, we wouldn't necessarily call that a technology of control. Or, or maybe we would, you know, if people are healthier, they're happier and maybe behave better. But uh, I, I think what your book points to, the gray area... For instance, if, if someone suffers from schizophrenia, and it's easy to make the medical argument that antipsychotics and things like that, but you kind of point to not only the, the lack of just transparency about how these things are, these drugs are administered, but there seems to be some data and some uh, anecdotes and, and some witnesses, if you will, speaking about how these drugs are, are used specifically for control. So for instance, giving uh, a prisoner who's speaking out about prison conditions, uh, certain, let's say sedatives, antipsychotics, or, or anything else to kind of shut them up. Can, can you, is that accurate? Can you describe that a little bit? I think, I think that's, I think that the way you described it is, is right. Um, there, there is this, you know, longstanding and established, you know, legal, uh, interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that uh, came down in 1976 that basically gave U.S. prisoners a constitutional right to health care. And they, re they remain really the only group of U.S. citizens, U.S. persons who have this, this right. Um, it's, you know, to call it a right is a little odd because the standard is that the state can't practice deliberate indifference with respect to the health of people in their custody and that that it's that literally means like we, they can't knowingly not care whether you live or die and there was this guy who got sick uh they refused to to treat him even though it was obvious he needed you know kind of basic medical care um mm -hmm. they just refused to treat him they just ignored him and he got very very sick and so i mean there were cases like that all over the country uh with prisons just kind of neglecting the health of people and the the u.s the supreme court basically said if you can't you can't do that so there is this kind of, you know, uh, on the one side, there's a real legitimate need for care, for health care. I mean, the prison, 
U.S. prisons and jails are central locations for the provision of healthcare in our country. Right, we're talking about millions of people, and for many of these these people who are, who become incarcerated either in a jail or prison, this is often the first time they've gotten healthcare in their lifetimes. Right, because so you're going from outside prisons where you have no guaranteed access to healthcare to a situation where you're going to get some. So you know you're you're much more likely to have to be able to to see a nurse or a, a physician upon intake, and this also extends to to psychiatric evaluation. Not everybody who gets incarcerated, you know, gets that full, you know, kind of fully detailed psych workup. Uh, I think that's the, you know, that 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 just simply isn't happening. In fact, I document in the book how, you know, as a percentage of prisons that that do a certain thing, more prisons are giving out drugs than do psych evaluations. Right, so psychotropic the, drugs. Yes, giving out psychotropic drugs. Right, so right. There, there, there's some 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 prisons are giving out drugs without proper evaluation, and that's something we see in other institutions too. We can talk about that in a minute, but um, you know that there, that there is this tension in this and this kind of very difficult to draw line between what is a legitimate medical practice that meets a legitimate demonstrated medical need, either one that existed prior to incarceration. Um, or one that develops over incarceration. I mean, prison is stressful. <laughs> prison create you know that's kind of part of the of 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 the game, and this is true for other kinds of situations. For example, I document in the in the book the case of soldiers, right, who are also in very stressful circumstances. And so, m- more than you know, kind of trying to figure out where this line is between a legitimate medical practice that we should encourage and something that's much more harmful, nefarious, that's designed to not to treat a mental uh, health problem or to help someone who's suffering, but to create suffering, <laughs> to make them suffer. Um, right. I think there's another interpretation, and that is that um, these institutions are just overwhelmed, right? They, they, right. they in, or, in order for them to do the thing we're asking them to do, they have to use some, you know, somebody's got to get some something to, to kind of keep things under wraps, right? The, the people who are held in the institution. So it's, it's much more for as a result of an institutional crisis, as it is for one relating to the people who are who are held there, and so I think that's that's one of the I think the surprising things for me in in looking at all these different institutions, um, not just prisons and jails, but also in the U.S. military, um, foster care system, nursing homes, immigrant detention, uh, which is you know horrific thing. I'd like to come back to, but um, you know, in all these institutions, you have the state just being overwhelmed. Right. Um, and, you know, you have, there's just not enough resources to do what you know to do uh, what, or doing what you think is right. So through your research, I, I know in the books that there are some examples about specifically drugs using to suppress, I'll call it loosely political activity. That could mean speaking out against conditions or I guess just giving the guard shit. Um, right. <laughs> uh, how right. What, what kind of what kind of stories like that have you encountered? I mean, there were, you know, in the 60s, 1960s and 70s, lots of stories that, that came out. Um, uh, I think, in, again, in that era of, of dissent, um, late 1960s, early 1970s, you had, you know, the, the prison in the U.S. was the, a, a central location for uprising, right? And, and for, uh, of course, prisons were used to, to hold pol- political prisoners of all kinds, particularly those who were anti-racist. And so um, there were, you know, it was very hard to kind of track down the specific details of what happened 
right? I mean, this is I was expecting to kind of dig into the to the archive of the history of the prison and find all these enumerated cases where political people who who claimed to be political prisoners or who were incarcerated for their political views or had political views while they were in prison were then drugged, right? Um, that I, I did not. That it was so challenging to find that. But what I did find, in contrast, were lots of, of legal cases where where prisons did you know uh, decided to drug a group of a smaller group of prisoners like in a specific moment. Uh, there was one one case that was um, in in New York um, at the Mattawan State Hospital in New, uh, a, a, a prison in New York. And uh, I think this was 1977, and there was a group of of women who were, again, as you say, raising hell, just like didn't want to follow the rules, uh, you know, and were rebelling um, and just had had enough. And the the warden had them transferred um, as a group to the local psych hospital where they were forcibly administered all sorts of things, you know, literally just to kind of calm them down and, and to keep them, you know, just kind of to squash the uprising. And, you know, there were cases of it happening in, 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 boy, in a boys' school in Indiana, a famous case, um, from a few, uh, uh, in the 1969. And again, most recently, um, at the Shiloh Treatment Center in Manuel, Texas, um, this is in 2018, in an immigrant detention facility, right, where um, there's, there's no, no psych evaluation happening. They're just literally, allegedly, just drugging these children uh, to keep the situation under wraps because um, it's, it's not like this kind of malicious silencing of, of, of dissent. It was very difficult to find that evidence, but I did find lots of evidence of institutions uh, drugging people um, uh, for convenience sake, maybe. And in some sense, you, you, t- you mentioned the, the 60s and 70s. Is this the plot of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> I think so. I mean, the cover of the book, I think, evokes that kind of cultural reference for me. I went back and looked at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest after the book was finished. I kind of intentionally didn't, like, didn't rewatch it, right, um, uh, in the, in, over all these years because, I, you know, that it's the, 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 the touch tone there is, 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 is spot on. And to go back to drugs used in immigrant detention facilities, are there specific drugs that listeners might recognize that that they're using and you know what is the sort of intended use versus the the use case uh, maybe i'll take you to the state of wisconsin for one one kind of con- concrete example sure um and 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 talk about an antidepressant like prozac right mm-hmm. prozac is probably the probably the most well-known psychotropic drug um uh that we've got um in in the state of wisconsin in 2009, and this is from a chapter in the book where, um, with a colleague of mine, we look at, at the audits of prison pharmacies to see what those auditors found when they looked at what the prison pharmacies were giving out. Um, and, and so in, in this one case, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 t- the top four drugs given out in Wisconsin in 2009 were all antidepressants. Um, Trazodone, and then uh, or, 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 or Desirol, and then Prozac was number two. Celexa, another common drug people would know. Um, and then later on down the list, number five is a drug called Risperdal. Um, this is an antipsychotic drug that people may, may, may recognize. Seroquel, Welbutrin, Effexor, Zoloft, 
And Risperdal, if I recall correctly, so antipsychotic drugs often make people very kind of lethargic and mm-hmm. tired. Is that accurate? I think it depends on the specific drug, but, but yes, um, one of the the, uh, the the side effects of, of antipsychotic medications is that they create metabolic dysfunction, right? So you gain weight, um, you're, you have developed hypertension, uh, your cholesterol wow. goes up, blood sugar goes up. Yeah, so you essentially it begins to transform your body metabolically. Um, these 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 are called second generation antipsychotics like Risperdal. Yeah, they, they, all these drugs have you know profiles of side effects that some of which are intended, right, and some of which are not. And I think that's what your question is kind of getting to. That you know uh, it it is not un, not unusual to think about being incarcerated and also being depressed. Right, and needing an antidepressant um, to help you manage that state of affairs. Right? Mm-hmm. Where is that line between the prisoner, you know, asking for needing this um, pharmacologic help, um, and the state saying, "Well, you know, in order for us to, you know, get through this shift, we're gonna, <laughs> right, we're gonna need you to take this." Right? Um, or you know. Um, I think, you know, there's kind of being a, a tacit understanding that prisoners need a little something and the prisons need them to have a little something to, to make it all work. You know, at the end of the day, Alec, you know, all these, every time that a, a drug is, is, is administered in the prison, every, you know, presumably, every time a drug is given out, it's because a doctor signed an order. But didn't, but didn't you just say there were more prescriptions than there were psychiatric evaluation? <laughs> yes. Right. Well, is, it a, is it a doctor is just not doing, there is a yeah. doctor, but he's not, he or she's not giving the psychiatric evaluation. That's, is that what's happening? That's, that's right. Gotcha. Right. So in, in some of these cases, for example, someone has been on a psych med out, out, they were on a psych med previously, right? Prior to their incarceration. And then when they get admitted, they'll say, I was taking, you know, uh, I was taking uh, Seroquel and then they will, you know, the prison will then move to keep that going if they can. I mean, if I could just just tell you the, the most recent data we have on this that the government has produced, I should say, mm-hmm. is from 2011, 2012. The most very the most recent data that is public in that in 2011, 2012, 29 percent of state and federal prisoners were t- were taking a psych med. To, for a mental health problem, right? 29% were only taking a psych med. 17, uh, pardon me, 19% of, st- of the prisoners were taking a psych med and also engaging in some kind of talk therapy and some kind of, you know, counseling therapy. Right. You know, now that's, that's what we know from, out, from, you know, outside prisons and, and these institutions, we know what, what you should be doing, right? If you're going to take a psych med, fine. But you also need to have, be in, in some kind of have additional psychosocial support, therapy, counseling to make that work. You can't just solve a mental health problem with a psych med. And so, you know, we have, you know, there's a, a, a gap there, right? Not, it's not everybody who is, who needs it is getting it. And everybody who's getting it might not need it. And we don't, there's no way to know where that, line is 
because of the way that this government produces information about mental health in prisons. And, and much of your book is actually about how opaque information on this whole situation is. Why is that or how is that? I, mean, it's, I think this is the, the, the coolest piece of this book. And I think part, partly one of the most, the easiest things we could actually remedy about the prison. You, know, you can think of the prison and people have made these analogies before, you know, kind of the slaughterhouse. Now, Irving Goffman called it a storage dump. And, and, you know, when you peer inside there and see what's going on, you really get a, uh, an accurate uh, representation of what's happening in the broader society. It's just kind of condensed and, you know, what are we hiding away? And uh, the practices of secrecy the, that the prison engages in, right, it's kind of part of its, I don't know, structure, um, it, you know, but there's nothing, there's no, there's no reason why they can't have information public, be, be public. One, one of the most... Um, uh, kind of shocking revelations, I think, in the book, or one of the things I found most most uh, disturbing was regarding the clinical trials for drugs in prison that unfolded over many, many decades. Where prisoners were the test subjects. That's right, where prisoners were test subjects in pharmaceutical clinical trials. And you know, I knew nothing of of this history, and and this is you know having you know spent you know the last you know fifteen twenty years in sociology, public health, you know, history, um, you know, being aware of these issues and, and really not, not knowing that there were vast clinical trials underway in, in U.S. prisons and jails for, again, for, for decades, such that uh, an FDA commissioner in 1979, 1980 was asked, you know, if he had to guess, you know, how, how, what percentage of, of, of drug studies were done on prisoners, he literally had to guess. And he guessed it. He, he said that it was 90 percent. So he said, you know, and this is 1979, 1980, um, that 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 and, and I tried to track this down a little bit um, between 1963, when the four tiered clinical trial system for drugs was was initiated between 1963. I think I've got that year right. In 1980, uh, when the practice stopped, 90 percent of all phase one and phase two trials were conducted on prisoners. Now, these are the safety and efficacy phases where we try to figure out how much of this can we give you before you get sick and how much do we need to, you know, how much do we, and, uh, a part of safety and toxicity, how much of it can we give you before it's not good? Yeah. So it's, let's see if this kills you. Let's right. might as well do this to a prisoner. Exactly. So, right. um, I mean, they, they literally, that was where the U.S. pharmaceutical um, kind of sector got its start. I mean, going back to the 1930s, you know, they were setting up shop in, on prison grounds. And again, we're doing this, this research for, for decades and decades and decades. We should know that. <laughs> we, you know, that, that seems like something that's important for the citizenry to know. One of the, one of the very interesting things you bring up is you mentioned a Nazi doctor who was on trial. I, I don't know if it was the yeah. Nuremberg trials. Yes. Uh, who was experimenting on, was it concentration camp? prisoners yes who said i don't know what you're complaining about like we got this idea from america yes exactly i mean and that so you know the, the nazis engaged they did this in, all the time know, the nazis they, they were like concentration camps the british did that yes exactly <laughs> right i mean and i mean they were in an, you know, this is knowledge transfer right uh in that in that era no they they absolutely were watching what we had been doing in fact i think it was the green commission was this, I think, Gov Governor Green of, of Illinois, you know, was looking at these practices like in the 30s and 40s, you know, in the U.S. 
again, you know, the Nazis picked it up from us, right? The idea that, you know, once you have this captive population, they become uh, the uh, very useful, right, uh, for science and for industry. They can right. be exploited within an inch of their lives. And in fact, it, it requires their lives. I mean, that's, I think, the, the, that's the language I, I used in the book, this around citizenship. Like, it requires that a person, sub, like, submit their body to the state. And I don't know if there is a difference in this thinking, but at least in America, to your point about citizenship, it was often one way for you to rehabilitate yourself after you've committed this crime is to serve the public good by partaking in this trial. So, so prisoners were quote unquote voluntarily submitting to these, but often with certain kinds of, of rewards. So coerced in a way. In other words, you might get time off your sentence. It might look good for the parole board if you put your life on the line to, to test this drug. So, so you write about this, but you also say, weirdly, it was often the, the white prisoners who were sort of benefiting from this rather than the prisoners of, of color. Is that, is that right? That's right. I, not, again, not something I expected at all. I actually went in thinking uh, my hypothesis was that black prisoners, brown prisoners, were going to be, you know, the subjects in, you know, uh, comprise a greater proportion of the subjects in most studies, and that they would have been exposed to the riskiest studies. But it turns out that might not have been the case. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Because there were real material benefits attached to participating in a drug trial, that privilege was often reserved more so for white, specifically for white men. Um, who were who were seen as the ideal test subject, you know, not black prisoners. It wasn't the black male body that was seen as ideal. It was the white male body that stood in as 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 what was standard. And drug companies made the argument that you know prisoners in particular made for ideal subjects because they had a standardized diet, they had a kind of standard work and life routine. Uh, they you didn't have to pay for transportation. And in fact, some prisoners, you know, took jobs working for the drug companies inside the prison. Like it was like their prison job to work in the in the clinic, uh, you know, conducting experiments. And they actually got paid for biological samples. I didn't include this an image of this in the book. I probably should have because it was what, one of the coolest things to find in the archive. And that was um, a, a fee schedule for what a prisoner would be paid for various biological samples, for example, a urine sample versus a biopsy versus, you know, and kind of what, how much the drug company eval numerically evaluated this kind of contribution. So um, I use the language of citizenship to describe, you know, how this all worked because, you know, the, oh, the white prisoners are the ones who could really be, they were the ones who could really be citizens, right? Um, black prisoners were not, could not be citizens. Um, and so they could not could not give to the nation in this way, but it also ended up excluding them from material benefits of of participating. Part me, one of which was just being able to leave your cell, right? To be able to leave your cell to go down to the clinic to spend time there, you know, breaks that monotony of prison of prison life up. Um, and so those those benefits were reserved for whites only. So this practice testing drugs on, on prisoners is no longer allowed. But is there kind of a, a lasting legacy in the medical uh, community from this? One of the fascinating things about the way that that, that that history of experimentation translated into into published science is that no no researchers were ever required to say in you know in their study that these these persons in this in this study were prisoners. 
Right. That was not a requirement of, 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 of publishing of your, your clinical research. The FDA, they, they weren't keeping track of that as a matter of policy, right. whether or not, because that was kind of like whatever, all the subjects were in, from prisons, basically, right? And in some psychiatric institutions. And so there was no, really no need to keep that data. But so you don't really know whether or not there, there was kind of no trace of it in the, in the published scientific record that that history of incarceration kind of gets, gets erased out, pulled out at that point. Uh, but it's just astounding to me that not only did U.S. pharmaceutical companies, do they currently make a ton of money off of selling drugs to the prison, ton of money, but the very thing that put them in the position to do that is the prison itself. Like if they didn't, if they hadn't had the prison, then you would, they wouldn't have risen to power in the way that they have. And once that practice was outlawed in prisons, it just went overseas. So other people, other people have documented this in their research that once, once, once drug companies could no longer access the U.S. prison uh, population, they were forced to go to the post-colony to go find some colonial subjects to, uh, to poke. Just to sw switch back a little bit, one specific kind of moment that you pull out is in the 1940s, American psychiatric hospitals begin closing. So there is an influx of uh, these people who are in these psychiatric hospitals to other institutions like prisons. And a decade or two decades later, the drug Thorazine comes out uh, and you say there's a, a very sort of tight connection there. What is that? Right. So Thorazine is understood to be the first psychotropic drug. It was discovered, synthesized in 1954. By that point in time, state-run psychiatric hospitals in the United States were already on the decline, right, after a century of their kind of prominence in kind of holding and capturing people who were not suitable for, for, for U.S. civilian life, right? They were like a, a catch-all for the what society deemed undesirable. Absolutely. They, you know, it was decided, right, I think rightfully so, that they needed to be closed. There were some, some horrible cases of, of abuses and neglect around the country that led to the, uh, you know, led to the policy shift. You know, we got to close these down. And in, in place of these, these hospitals, Akum prisons, we need to create some kind of community mental health structure. And so, you know, um, that was, I think, the vision in the, through the 40s and 50s. And then Thorazine comes on the scene and, and really transforms the ways in which psychiatrists and other uh, physicians are thinking about uh, psychosis and then, and then thinking about kind of real, you know, the whole litany of what we're becoming known as and enshrined as kind of legitimate, discrete psychiatric disorders. So there's this tight synergy between the rise of the American Psychiatric Association and the diagnostic and they call the DSM, uh, they're kind of the kind of psychiatric Bible, and now the use of these drugs. And this all, this synergy starts to form in the 50s. But again, the psych hospitals were already beginning to kind of let go of people. And it wasn't like the, the drugs came on the scene and they allowed for prisons to, uh, pardon me, for psych hospitals to release people back to the community. Rather, people were being released into the community and the drugs then became kind of part of the, part of the mix. Other people have documented the uh, you know, mommy's little helper through the 50s and 60s, right? It's not, it's not unusual in our history to think about Americans taking drugs to transform their consciousness, right? Sorry, mommy, mommy's little, is that a euphemism for a specific drug? Yeah, mommy's little helper is this kind of was, was the way in which gave reference to these kind of sedatives, right? Um, and other kind of mild, you know, 
mild drugs that 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 the kind of the 1950s kind of housewife could take to cope with having to live under this particular version of patriarchy, right? <laughs> um, and you know, help mommy get through the day, kind of thing. So essentially, you have people being released from psychiatric hospitals. A lot of them end up in prisons, and at the same time, Thorazine comes on the market, and it, Thorazine just becomes a solution to this this problem. I think some people, and so the, the kind of hype around psychotropics like Thorazine um, has always been that they are a, a solution, a panacea. I think reasoned and thoughtful pract- medical doctors, practitioners don't don't see it that way. They see them as useful in controlled settings, again, with other supports. But the kind of broader cultural narrative about these drugs is, yes, they are going to solve this problem. Mm. Um, and I think that applies to, to the cases, uh, to the broader argument in the book. I do think that, you know, we're using psychotropics to solve a, a policy problem, right? Not necessarily to solve the problem of, of, of people, right? But that a policy problem. We have a, we have a system of mass incarceration that requires that we have these drugs, I think. Let's talk about that. So you argue in your book that it is prison, prisons as they currently exist might not be possible without these drugs. But then you also zoom out because the subtitle of your book is about captive America, other places of control, nursing homes, the military, highly regimented, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, a lot of mental health issues going on, and then immigrant detention facilities. So let's talk about that. But then I just want to sort of zoom out even more, not to conflate the two, but to your example about let's say mommy's a little helper or just the use of yeah. drugs as almost a coping mechanism or kind of a necessary social lubricant for our existing social ills. But yeah. let's talk about, let's start with, with nursing homes. What, what have you learned there? The nursing, they're, they're giving out a lot of psych meds out in nursing homes. And there've been, there's been good investigative reporting on this and good social science research on this to show that a lot of the uses of psychotropics among elders in nursing homes isn't isn't right. In one you know, specific case I document in the book or cite in the book is the case of Janssen Pharmaceuticals. And Janssen Pharmaceuticals is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, and they had to pay the largest settlement in U.S. history uh, for civil and criminal liability for promoting the off-label use of Risperdal. Um, again, one of, those, one of those antipsychotic drugs for the treatment of dementia, right? So, wow. if you, and and so they were, you know, actively promoting uh, and and kind of pitching and, and pressing nursing homes to give their residents antipsychotics for dementia. And you don't give antipsychotics like Risperdal for dementia. <laughs> that's just not that's not what you would do. Um, the other um, kind of shocking thing that I learned was that it, one particularly well done study showed that about a quarter of the instances of drugging in nursing homes had no medical basis whatsoever. Like they were literally, people got admitted and two weeks later they were on a med. And it was literally about just kind of keeping our elders, you know, sequestered in their chair, you know, um, suppressing libido um, as well. So it's, it's just a case where it seems like we have a broader like social problem. And the broader social problem, at least vis-a-vis elders, is that we don't, and, and as this is, I think, equally true for children who um, become part of the foster system, is that because of extreme inequality, because of you know, families' incapacity 
and 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 the difficulty in taking care of each other, right? How, making a living wage, having health insurance, um, having adequate adequate schooling, all the things we know, uh, you know, living in in a, in a relatively pollution free environment that are important for for human thriving don't exist. So these institutions become kind of what ha- what, what what we put in place when the society fails people. Right. So we, we can't take care of our elders. So we put them in these institutions, which then drug them. Right. We have children who become wards of the state who have really had a, a, a rough go of things. And, and yet they are drugged at you know, three times the rate of kids uh, there's, you know, in their communities. So there's just the, the, the potential for abuse. And given these dynamics, I think is high. So, and, and that was, I document that in nursing homes, document that in the foster care system. And then the military, if we could just, if I just holler at that, about that for a minute, man, because the, you know, we had in, in 2003, the invasion of the sovereign nation of Iraq, uh, the year before, I guess it was in, in November of, of, of 11, of Afghanistan, and, and uh, after 9 and you know, that created a huge policy problem for the U.S. government, for the U.S. military, right? You had an all-volunteer force. You had a two-theater conflict uh, that escalated out into the broader war on terror. And um, you had to keep those soldiers going through multiple de- multiple deployments. You had to keep them online. And the, 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 the military literally says that they were, you know, giving, send, they, they started sending segments out to the war zone so that they could conserve the fighting strength. So they, be, they the psychments have become a way to solve a policy problem, and that's not we don't that's not what we should do. <laughs> we should we should change that. And I, I think the army's kind of a clear example of you have this machine pushing people to the ends of their mental wellness and functionally breaking. And again, not to directly conflate the two, but like similarly, if we zoom out even further to uh, you know, I, I live in New York where lots of people have stressful professional lives, where essentially because of a mixture of student debt, work stress, unfulfillment, just a lot of societal issues that have a lot to do with modern alienation and lack of resources and stigmas around mental health, lots of different factors. But the easiest thing seems to be to, hey, here's some antidepressants. You'll hate your job a little bit less. Uh, maybe you'll feel a little bit better. You'll get, get outside the house. And also that often antidepressants work best in conjunction with talk therapy, but it seems like, and this is anecdotal for me, so I don't know if you know a little bit more about this. It seems to be, you show up to a psychiatrist and instead of, they might say that, but it's really just, here's your prescription. Uh, if you want to, if you want to show up to talk therapy, that's on, on you rather than really pushing that as the the best treatment plan. Right. It's not in any way a requirement. And, you know, most of the psych prescriptions, psych med prescriptions in the U.S. are written by general practitioners. Right. Like this is like your family doctor. This is not, you know, a trained psychiatrist or even a, a GP who has specific expertise in, in, in mental health um, at all. And so I think that that's much more hit or miss for, for, for most people in this country. If you have access to health insurance and therefore have access, have access to healthcare providers, um, they're going to vary dramatically in terms of how they confront any of your psychic woes. There's one super interesting story to tell here, and that is about, and it's about antidepressants. Um, the New York Times, uh, I think maybe a year ago, came out with this really fascinating story about the practice of parking people on antidepressants. And they use the term parking literally to describe you know, people who were on antidepressants for five years or more. 
right? Like long-term antidepressant use. And as they point out in the story, and as is true, when these drugs were studied and were approved, the thought was that they would be for short-term use, right? That, you know, a dose of some antidepressants with some talk therapy and you, and you get through a tough situation and then you emerge on the other side of it and no longer need them. But instead, we have uh, this practice of parking people on antidepressants, which has led to people being on these meds and they can't get off of them, right? They, they literally cannot get off of them. And if we were talking about Ill illicit substances, we would call that addiction. But guess who uh, is most likely to be parked on antidepressants long term? It's older white women. We see what we're doing there, right? And, and I wish we had a better solution for these older white women, for these women, right? We need a better solution for them. Being parked on antidepressants long term is not a solution. In fact, it, it, be, it stops being a solution and becomes a problem in and of itself, and I think that's an interesting way in which the technology kind of flips up on you, right? You think it's working for you, but all of a sudden, it's not. And it requires, again, this is part of its agentic power, is it, it requires you to then make other adjustments in your world to accommodate for the fact that it's now here, right? So you have to build a world around the effects of the technology, and 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 that's I think I think you know for the nerds in the room like this is definitely I think one of the theoretical uh, most important findings of this book and one of its important most important claims is that we have to be watchful of technology because it requires us to build worlds we didn't want. Let's say in the context of older white females, what what is that world that they're building around that? Well, in this case, it's the world enshrined by patriarchy and misogyny. So rather than confronting patriarchy and misogyny, which are the which we know are the source of suffering for billions of women around the world, right? In, in all of its institutional and cultural and material forms, right? Rather than confronting patriarchy, we are parking women on antidepressants. Right now that's a I mean, it's, it's it's hard to draw a causal line there. This is more an associational claim I'm making, right? But uh, and the same is true for for racism. It, one of the cases I document in the book is that of Camila Brock, who is this black woman in New York um, who was it's a famous case, right? She was like riding down the street in her BMW singing a song and the police stop her <laughs> and detain her, impound her car do not believe that her car is hers. She's a banker. And, you know, they basically have her hospitalized for, I think, 11 days, right? And forcibly, she was forcibly administered psych meds uh, during her, you know, internment. And, you know, and it, presumably all she did was just kind of violate the cultural norms around uh, being a black woman. You know, I think that that's what I think I mean, right? Because we're not confronting those social structures that, are creating harm, you know, that's in fact allowing that world to exist and allowing us to make changes or uh, requiring of us to keep it in place. And I think this sort of disparity is a good time to at least bring up your previous book was Blood Sugar, Racial Pharmacology and Food Justice in Black America. Obviously, it's a huge issue and we can't get to it all right now. But in that book, how does racism sort of intersect with healthcare or, or pharmacology in this case? I think these are these two projects are connected. But but in Blood Sugar, I tell the story of something called metabolic syndrome, which is a biomedical category 
this idea that epidemiologists and other scientists came up with to describe people who are at really high risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And so this is people who are overweight, obese, have high, high, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, are pre-diabetic, hypertension, and so forth. And you know, I, I show how the history of this construct, you know, was has to be told in the context of, of racism, right? In the history of scientific racism in, in, in the United States, we know that there are racial inequalities in health care, and we know that there are racial inequalities in health, right? Uh, at least some, we should know that. But this book also adds to that, you know, thinking about the practices within science and medicine that still are racist uh, and that are linked to the other two. So, you know, one concrete example from the book is in terms of um, statins. Statins are drugs that treat, you know, cholesterol problems, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they are the, um, among the nation's best-selling drugs um, and have been for a long time. They're among the most studied drugs. And now drug companies are, they have for a while now been designing kind of racially specific marketing campaigns around their drugs, racially specific kind of sciences and clinical studies around those drugs to show that they are effective in particular racial groups and maybe not in others. And then the, the, re, the researchers who are studying how those drugs are processed in the body believe that people in different racial groups are biologically, genetically different from one another because of something called race, right? So, you know, the, these scientists are, are basically engaged in the form of scientific racism or producing these kind of racist ideas about, about racial difference. One, one book I'm familiar with, which I know we talked about a little bit before, is uh, Jonathan Marks' is Science Racist, where he says, genetic differences geographically are 100% a thing. You have communities, you know, whether they're migrating or not, it adapting to certain environments, let's say, you know, malaria, et cetera. However, taken across literally just skin color, they become completely meaningless. So that's right. So it's not that sickle cell anemia affects black people. It's that sickle cell affects people uh, in, living in areas of malaria. So sometimes that is people in Africa. Sometimes that is other parts of the world also affected by malaria. So when they're developing these drugs, it's not like they're saying, oh, if you are descended from this geographic region uh, that is predominantly black, you might be at risk for X, Y, Z. It's literally just like, well, if your skin's black, you're going you're gonna to have these issues. Is that what's going on? That's what's going on. The latter, right? And it, this is partly due to the to FDA rules regarding the, what those clinical trials have to look like and also regarding the, the guidelines that the National Institute of Health establishes for the conduct of biomedical research in the country, you have to consider and include race now in those studies. And if you decide not to include it, you have to make an argument as to why you didn't. But the, 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 what's, the consequence of that is that companies then can use uh, and researchers then use race in ways that, and just talk about race in ways that are that are just straight up racist. Uh, actually, Alec, Al, bring me back to your question, if you could. I was just trying to tease apart the genetic differences that come with geography versus the oh right the sort of mythical genetic differences. Due to, uh, another thing, Jonathan Marks points out, I believe, is that there is more genetic difference between people within the same race or skin color than there is across. That's right. One example he gives is uh, the reason blood types were discovered. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The reason blood types were discovered is because they thought that there were different blood types for different races. 
And clearly, you know, white people would have the best one. But then they discovered, oh, you're just as likely to share the same blood type with a person regardless of race than you are within your same race. And genetics is kind of the same thing. That's right. Obviously, excluding sort of those geographical sort of environmental uh, things like malaria adaptations or genetic diseases in northern European communities and stuff like that. Right. Like ty- like type 1 diabetes, for example. Right. If you, if you only use... If you only use a social concept of race, if you only use an idea of race to try to identify who's going to get a particular disease or not, you're never going to figure it out. If you're using race to try to figure out a person's biology or a group's biology, that's not how you do that, right? Race is not useful to in, in those terms. But there, but there's a there's something important kind of piece to add to this, and that is that it's not to say that when we look at the human population. We don't see biological differences across so-called racial groups. We do see differences. But the key issue is what caused the differences that you right. observe, right? And what, is the, what tools do you use to determine what is different? That's another, another important question there. But the broader point is that you know, racism creates biological effects, in people, right? It literally is, it, it kills you, right? So um, it, it will actually it kills black people and non-white people and it allows white people to thrive, right? That's what racism does to the body. And so it's not to say that we shouldn't be looking at bodies to see what racism, you know, we should be looking at bodies to see what racism did, but we shouldn't be trying to explain those differences, say in, in health inequality, for example, with reference to some inherent fixed you know, racial essence that ties you to your ancestral people. That's not how, that's not what race is. Right. right? So it's true that that kind of, you know, deep evolutionary patterns and migration and, and connection among humans have shaped the human, the human genome and have shaped our responses to different environments. But to call those things racial as such is, is just bad science and it's racist. So, um, Jonathan Marks, people like Dorothy Roberts, and many other people, you know, have uh, myself have been have been have been t- trying to challenge that, and that's important for anti-racism because if we not, you know, we're still talking about you know racial genomes and and all those things. We're not talking about racial structure. I think a good example of this, as I understand it, for metabolic syndrome, as you said, there's this cluster of hypertension, obesity, diabetes. I'm probably missing a few, and a, a scientist may say oh, you know, black men suffer from this at extraordinary rates, but all those things like obesity could in part be caused by food deserts in, in urban areas, pollution, uh, you know, all the, the not in my backyard kind of let's put the factory next to the, the black neighborhood. Right. For the environmental racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Environmental racism, you know, financial stress. Those are also things that would give you all those things. So again, I, I, I think your point is not that metabolic syndrome is this thing that happens to be caused by being black, except that it's caused by being black in America because of racism. That's exactly right. And, and where the scientists have to, br- have to brush up and get better is in terms of saying that race is a cause of things rather than racism is a cause of things. Right. right? Um, and that, that's just the, simple, the simple lesson for that. You know, there, there was this, there's a, an important Kind of lesson there, I think, for, for, for people themselves, like people who are not scientists, who are not researchers, but who are kind of struggling to live well and, and make sense of what their bodies are doing in this, in this world, and particularly in terms of health. And that is, you know, recognizing that, you know, yes, we have, 
you know, individual responsibility. We have the power of choice. Okay, on some level, maybe we do. But the broader, the broader question I always bring people to is, well, what's the system of choices? Right. Mm. We didn't set up the system. Right. That we we just kind of inherit that. And um, when you don't look at what the effects the social system creates in people, you're missing a huge piece of it, particularly with when it comes to health and well-being. Um, and that applies to, to metabolic health, um, and it applies to mental health as well. This society is mad stressful, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is to your broader point earlier. It's so stress. Capital, racial capitalism, this horrible patriarchy we have is so stressful. Uh, at the same time, you know, listen, we should, we should broaden out globally and consider that you know the the suffering that exists here you know it exists in relationship to the suffering around the world um and you know um i'm not i'm not mad, you know it's like tupac said i'm not mad at you if you, you need a little something to help you get you through it <laughs> um but when but when the state is the one providing that thing and when, co when corporations are, are enriching themselves providing that salve right and that's the like that just it further enshrines the power that is creating your suffering I want to conclude this interview. I like asking people out there questions generally about things that are popular in the zeitgeist. I'll give you a second to think about it, but I'm going to raise two people and just how would your work theoretically possibly apply or what could your work tell us about these two people? So number one, Martin Shkreli raised the price of a medication that's often used for people with HIV AIDS by, I forget the number, 500%, 5,000% uh, is now in jail for fraud bought a Wu-Tang album that was not available to the general public. He's the the sole owner of it. Yes, he, yes, he, yes, he did get that Wu-Tang album. Yeah, he got that Wu-Tang <laughs> album, uh, which they can still steal back, as I understand. Uh, but anyway, he's essentially become the microcosm. Poster child. Uh, poster, poster child of, of yeah. uh, like pharmaceutical greed, but also just being a con man. What would you say about that? You know, these, you know, kind of individual cases are definitely bring the public's attention to the situation, but they almost make it seem like it's just them. Like, you know, these, these, these particular bad guys who are, are, are otherwise corrupt, corrupting an otherwise blameless system that gives me what I need to get by, right? That we see, I think we, the pharmaceutical industry is super interesting because it's both vilified on the one hand, yet totally required for the U.S. project to continue. I mean, have you been to a pharmacy and seen a line? Right. People, you know, this is constant. And so, you know, you really have to look carefully to see how these structures are put together. But they're mad greedy, man. To me, I'm obsessed with Martin Shkreli. And I feel like a lot of my, my friends are as well, because he is this purely distilled version of what we already believe the pharmaceutical industry to be. In other words, uh, a, a phrase I've used elsewhere is like a cultural whistle, whistleblower yeah. in that he's I mean, he's terrible, but he's great in a way because he is completely honest about the grift he's yeah. running in a way that I wish the larger pharmaceutical industry would be. <laughs> right, right. It's, his hustle is very public, as you say. Like he's yeah. definitely not, you know, mincing words. He's not hiding. I mean, in some ways, he is kind of a counterpoint to the argument I make in Silent Cells, right? That sometimes mm. this stuff is public, you know, and, and you see very clearly what interests are at play. Right. Um, and it's, it's probably it's no coincidence that it was an HIV drug as well. We can make similar arguments for insulin, right, where, you know, pharmaceutical companies, the major producers of insulin have literally conspired to fix the price of insulin and, and, and jack it up 
it's just super, super expensive. So it's like they, they know that that's breaking people's backs. They know it. Yeah. And recently this was just brought up by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but PrEP, which is, uh, can prevent HIV transmission, costs like $1,000 a month in the United States and in other countries cost something like $8 because of our insane patent system. But again, Martin Shkreli is just like, I'm, I'm about that money. I'm about getting that Wu-Tang album. Whereas these other people, when you ask the, the person, why is this, why is PrEP $1,000? Oh, well, you know, uh, patents and, you know, they give this very highly manicured PR spin to it. Yes, it's about research, research development and all. I mean, they've been saying that they've been saying that shit since the 1960s. I mean, I and I tell that story in the book, man, it, you know, that that there was a when, when it looks like the government was about to shut down the clinical research programs in prisons, the drug companies had a conference and they brought together some government people and some some corporate people and some other people. Uh, they had brought together some minority groups. And they talked about it. And the drug company was basically making the argument like, look, we need, if we want to keep, well, and the way they framed it was euphemistically, if we want to keep making this progress, then we're going to need access to these people, right? And by progress, they literally mean like, if we're going to keep making this money. The last person I'll ask you about, Elizabeth Holmes, founder of Theranos, which was, could run allegedly or theoretically, hundreds of blood tests. Uh, with just a, a pinprick of blood, you know, cheaper than ever, raised hundreds of millions of dollars at, I believe it was a $9 billion valuation. It was also all fraud. And she she couldn't get the machine to work, but wasn't telling anyone. So it was just running. She was diluting the pinprick of blood, putting it through machines available through Quest Diagnostics, and essentially giving people bad, like bad and potentially dangerous results about their blood, and it all came crashing down, and now they're valued at like zero dollars. Zero dollars, yeah. But you know, in, in a strange way, I mean, her, the case of Theranos and its failure, it, it has to be read, and I think in in at least one or two ways, right? On the one hand, yes, this was just outright just fraud. It was just a game, you know, it was just a game, and again, the gig was up. On the other hand. You know, you could, you know, you can see this as, um, you know, a stand-in for the broader status of biotech, the pharma, including pharmaceuticals, their status as sciences. You know, presumably if she had been able to figure it out, this would have been revolutionary. And there are often revolutionary technologies that come online. You know, in, in Blood Sugar, I call them, they're called killer applications, these killer apps. They just come on the scene. And they're, they just take over the marketplace. But that does not necessarily mean that they are scientific or that they are, are, are going to deliver what they promise to deliver. Um, the, the psychotropics are a brilliant example of this because we still don't know exactly yeah. how, what they do to our brains. We don't know. And yet they're selling billions and billions of dollars a year globally. Um, they're in widespread distribution. Um, we believe that they're going to do what we want them to do, but we don't know what they're doing. It's like the biggest experiment, um, except no one's really watching. So seeing a negative case like Theranos can make it harder to see the other cases that you got to face um, that continue to you know, uh, work under your nose. Anthony Ryan Hatch, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. So people should definitely check out your book, Silent Cells. Also, Blood Sugar. Uh, I've not read Blood Sugar, but I'm assuming it's as great as Silent Cells. 
Uh, is there a place on the internet that people can find you? I don't know if you're on Twitter or you have an academia.edu or you hate academia.edu because they're kind of shady. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Anthony Ryan, at Anthony Ryan Hatch, Anthony R. Hatch, excuse me. You can find, find both of these books at the University of Minnesota website as well as Amazon, other retailers. And um, you can find me at Wesleyan University in the Science and Society program there um, where we, we do this stuff all day. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. It's been my pleasure, man. Wonderful to talk with you. Hey, if you like this podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you can leave reviews. It'll help us keep making the show and help other people find it. And also, if you're interested, tweet us your topic suggestions. We're on Twitter at Crit Theory. That's C-R-I-T Theory. No spaces. See you next time.